Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning. Welcome to Hosanna. It's good to see all of you. Let's come to worship. Let's stand together as you as you're able.
Let's run.
seat. You're probably tired now after all that running. Uh, that was taken from Psalm, from the book of Psalms. I forget which one now, sorry. 119, thank you. It's in the title. Uh, but, you know, the psalmist David was, he was a man who felt deeply. Uh, he loved passionately. He thought creatively. He lived adventurously. He was probably a right-brained creative type. He wrote songs and psalms, and he sang them, played the harp. He saw things from a different perspective with his heart, not just his mind. Uh, he could put feelings and struggles into words. He could express human emotions and experiences that others didn't know how to express. That's why the psalms, the book of psalms, are so near and dear to our hearts, right? Because they say what we're feeling and don't know how to say they voice often what we're afraid to say or admit that we struggle with faith sometimes, that we have doubts and fears, that we get angry with God, as well as the exhilarating mountaintop experiences, all right there in the book of Psalms. He wrote down the whole spectrum of life experiences for us to pray and to worship with. It is a gold mine for worship resources, you know. Teach me your ways, the song we just sang. My heart desires to seek your face. I want to know you. I love you, Lord. I'm going to run hard after you. You consume my thoughts. You are great. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where he says things like, where are you, God? How long must I suffer? Why are you hiding? Why do the wicked succeed and the righteous appear to fail and suffer? David experienced extremes, extreme highs, extreme lows. But he always came back to center. Whether he was on the mountaintop or he was in the valley, his center was this. I will sing. I will praise your name. I will bless your name. You are faithful. You are just. You are good. Always came back to that, didn't he? One of the amazing experiences, and we talk about this a lot, when we come together on a Sunday morning or in your living room, wherever you are, one of the most amazing things is that we all come into this place, in this building, from different places. Some of you are running hard after God right now, and you're, and you, you're feeling passionate, and you're feeling inspired. And some of you are feeling abandoned by God and desperate and everything in between that spectrum. And we're all coming together. But no matter where we are, we can meet in the center, can't we, when we get together? We can all sing and we can all worship God across the whole entire spectrum because we can all come to the same place and say, I will sing to you. You are just, you are good, you are faithful. So we want to go from one extreme of David's psalms from running after God to another psalm where he expressed great pain and doubt. But you'll see him coming back to center as well as we sing this. And sing, obviously, we invite you to sing along with us in this song as you are able. (laughs) 
still waters, Lord, you restore my soul. Your rod and your staff, they comfort. It's a sign that we are never out of your reach. For your rod and your staff lead us back home. You never abandon us in the fire. You never leave us alone. You are faithful. You are good. Never present help in time of need.
come in the, into center. We come into the center and we all meet here together. You may have a seat. Why don't you say hello to somebody as you're sitting down. morning and our friends on the live stream. Hello to you as well and welcome to Hosanna. The ushers are coming. You're going to get ready to give your offering this morning and just a reminder our change for change bucket in the back is for when you walk out this morning and you have loose change or loose dollar bills in your pocket and you want to drop that in there. The money for July, August and September is going to go to the Resurrection Church where Harry and Tanka are to help them with their Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. I know it seems early to be doing that, but you know what? We're halfway through the year already, and I know they're already getting ready to support that ministry again, so that's what the offering is for in the back for Change for Change. Let me pray before we take up our offering. God, thank you for the beautiful words of Sean's song, that you're the air that we breathe. And you're the song that we sing. Lord, we thank you for your lavish love that you have for each one of us. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of this day. We thank you for these good people who week after week support the ministry of this church inside these walls and beyond these walls. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, you can pass those offering buckets. Well, we had a totally tubular vacation Bible adventure this week. Whoa, and many of us are kind of dragging from that this week. It was amazing. Now, I'm not going to steal any thunder. Kelly Kirk Wenzel and her family are on vacation this week. They left for Florida. And so next Sunday, she's going to come and give a more detailed update. But let me tell you, the kids were amazing. The volunteers were amazing. The meals that the kitchen made for the volunteers to eat before every night of Vacation Bible Adventure was amazing. And I just have to tell you two little stories. Probably Kelly might tell them again next week. But I was standing at the door out here with all the parents and the kids were leaving. And a grandma was walking out with her little girl in a unicorn little outfit. She looked so cute. But tears were rolling down her face. And I thought maybe something happened. And I said, is, is she okay? And the grandma said, yeah, she's crying because tomorrow night's the last night of VBA. <laughs> and then Randy Stauffer and Denise, Randy and Denise Stauffer, their little twin grandkids. Oh, my gosh. Ezra and, es and Estelle. Randy looked over at Ezra the one night. He was perfectly fine. The next minute, he was bawling his little eyes out. And Randy's like, what's wrong? I don't want to go home. I wanted to stay at Vacation Bible Adventure. That's the impact that this has had on the kids this week, and it's quite amazing. So Kelly will give you more of an update next week. Well, our guest speaker this morning 
was born in West Texas, raised in the military all around the world. She began her career as a journalist in radio and TV, moved to print reporting, and was a news director of a statewide network. She returned to Penn State University to finish her degrees in English, History, and Humanities. She taught journalism and writing for 15 years at Penn State University, Harrisburg, and Lebanon Valley College. She earned her MA in Spiritual Direction at Evangelical Theological Seminary. We know that place, don't we? That's for Tony and to win, spend a lot of their time. And she's been in private practice as a spiritual director and writing coach for the past three years. Join me and help me give a warm welcome to Jane Clark. Come on, Jane. Bring us the message this morning. We're good? Okay. Ooh, we're good. <laughs> Hardest part, I think, is walking up these steps in these shoes. <laughs> I don't know about you, I've been barefoot for the last year and a half. So. Well, I want to thank the worship team for that beautiful musical interlude. Parts of it just struck me so deeply. And kind of as an ecstatic mystic, I'm always moved by that. So before we start, I want to ask you, Let's go back to that for a minute. I want you to close your eyes, put your hand over your heart, and repeat with me three times, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Can you feel that? Feel the spirit moving? Okay, let's open our eyes. Just had to do that. Some of you know that um, I've been working with a writing group on Wednesday evenings. And this group, even though we've only been meeting for three weeks, has become so close and has developed so much meaning, so much wisdom. Each week I'm astounded by what the writers bring. So I want to honor them today by bringing some of their wisdom to you in this message. This is dedicated to the writers. I'm very grateful for you. In the writing group, we've been talking about suffering and how we return together as a church community after a year and a half of suffering. Suffering well, if there is such a thing. I think it's a little bit of an oxymoron, but. We do it better when we're together. We do it so much better. Right now, as we're coming back from a life of exile, we lived through a major historic event that impacted and shocked the entire world. We lived away from our friends, family members, school, church groups, gyms, clubs, libraries, and other activities that made our lives meaningful. So how do we come back together after lockdown, after 14 months of fear, loss, and confusion that was new to all of us? As 
we return, we're trying to renew our friendships in the church. But we have questions. Has everybody come back? If not, who's missing? We're coming back with lots of questions about the pandemic. Who's vaccinated? Will the shots protect us from the new variant? Are we going to need booster shots? Do we need masks in restaurants? Is it even safe to go into a restaurant? So many questions that don't have easy answers. When we see our friends, we have questions that we want to ask them about their lives. What did they lose? Who did they lose? Did they lose someone to the virus? Do they still have jobs? How are their children? What I want to talk about this morning is how to share what we've endured. What do we do with this incredible, difficult experience? And I do believe we need to talk about it. Although this will not be a grape session, I want to suggest that talking about surviving in exile for a year and a half is not whining, nor is it complaining. It's part of the process of recovering ourselves and honoring what we've lived through. One of the most difficult parts of shutdown was that so many of us suffered alone. We didn't have friends who could share our losses. I didn't even realize how important my friends were, nor my family. We couldn't go to funerals, birthday parties, graduations. Holidays were just empty and sad. The truth, though, is that isolation and loss are not new experiences for Christians. Shortly after his baptism, Jesus went into the Judean desert, where he was isolated for 40 days. While he was there, we know that he was tempted by the devil three times. The Gospels speak of this isolation as living among wild beasts, no food, no protection, except from the angels who ministered to him. He did resist temptation, but who was there to witness it? None of the disciples. He hadn't begun his, his public ministry. So he was alone without any other human beings. Yet in spite of this aloneness, he didn't react the way we might think a human would react. Jesus used the time to go, grow deeper in relationship with God. His isolation became a sanctuary. And later in his life, he began to seek time alone, to pray, to meditate, and recharge his body. Let me ask you this, did we do this? during the shutdown? Not all of us. Many times we complain bitterly about being alone and watching the world fall apart. And as we sat at home and watched the news in particular, we were tempted to become angry or to express our helplessness and our hopelessness when in fact we were fortunate to have homes to live in. What's interesting about Jesus is the night before his arrest, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing he was going to be tortured and would experience agony. 
And as he was on the cross near death, he prayed again in a way that's almost surprising. He began to question God, saying, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What we learn from this verse is that during times of suffering, it is appropriate and it's good to question God. It's good to express our fear and pain. And we see Jesus turn this into a prayer by asking, may this cup be taken from me. The cup Jesus is referring to is the suffering he was about to endure. When he petitions his father, let this cup pass from me, he expresses the natural human desire to avoid pain and suffering. In these verses, we learn from Jesus how to ask for relief. He shows us again it is acceptable to express fear, to ask for relief from our suffering. And he shows us that these requests are indeed a form of prayer. What came after his death, as we know, was his resurrection. And that also carries a symbol that is connected to suffering. The promise that Jesus will be redeemed. As the song says, that is for us too. We now know there's another in the fire. These days, retreats are offered for those who want to experience this kind of sanctuary from the world. Spiritual folk know this to be a very rich time for growth for all people of all faiths. So they offer it as a way toward redemption. Early Christians were taught the divine virtues of faith and hope and love that came directly from the behavior of Jesus as a humble Messiah. He modeled it, of course, throughout his life. And we had an opportunity to follow those virtues as we sat at home in lockdown. I, in all honesty, I'm not sure I did. Very hard to do. But the point I really want to emphasize is aloneness in suffering. Suffering in isolation is a tortured kind of suffering that is made worse by not having a witness. It becomes almost unbearable. Our isolation was very long, and for some of us, our faith was tested again by a world that enticed us to become angry, bitter, and resentful over the loss of our freedom to be consumers. Our fortitude was tested as we learned to stay at home and do without material goods, even paper towels. We were away from friends and family and a life we had come to expect. Now, many of us had terrible losses, family members lost to the virus, jobs, home, schooling and the way we had experienced it, and a certain quality of life. And like Jesus in the desert, we were deprived of witnesses, except others who were also suffering. 
Let's look at another biblical character who endures something similar. We read in the Old Testament about Job's horrendous losses. We know that except for Jesus, probably no one in the Bible suffered more than Job. Job spent months in misery. He lost seven sons and three daughters, all of his wealth in one afternoon. He developed painful sores all over his body, making him repulsive to his wife and his brothers. After a while, Job's friends came to see him. Some scholars believe that the central figure in the book of Job is not Job himself, but his intense suffering, because it gives us a framework for the primary theme, the role of suffering in the life of a believer, as well as the importance of witnesses to our suffering. Speaking of witnesses, let's take a look at how Job's friends reacted. In Job 2.11, we read, we read that three of his friends came to his rescue, sort of. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Terminite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite. They made an appointment together to come to condole with him and comfort him. When they saw him from afar, though, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they rent their robes and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. Then they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was great. We might ask ourselves, why did Job have to suffer? He loved God. He did all the things the Bible tells us to do to show our love for God. He was humble. He tried. We know he tried to accept his suffering. And he praised God. So why? Why did this happen? After weeks of pain, Job begins to ask that same question. Why me? Then he turns to his closest friends to express his feelings of hopelessness. He says, let the day perish when I was born. In verse 20, Job says, why is light given to him that is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it come not? His friends get tired of hearing him. They grow impatient with him. So they start to speak to him. They're going to they're gonna fix Job. Eliphaz first, he breaks in. And he responds with an admonition saying, Think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, trouble comes to those who sin, but not to the righteous. In his opinion, suffering is the result of sin, and prosperity 
is the result of righteousness. If that wasn't enough to add insult to injury, Eliphaz says, Job must not have praised God in the way he should have. So he blames the victim for his suffering. This is too much for Job. He begins to protest his own innocence. He knows this is too simple, and he knows Eliphaz missed the point. So he says in book 6, verse 10, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. And he returns the rebuke. Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have erred. Then Bildad jumps in. And in 8, 6 through 7, he says, If you'll seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse you and reward you with a rightful habitation. He also suggests, though, that Job's children might be the cause. Can you imagine somebody saying that to you? Zophar rebukes Job for claiming to be innocent, and he tells him, put away your sin. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in your tents. Surely then, you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure, and you will not fear. I cannot think of anyone who would deserve that kind of response from a friend or three friends. So now Job's had it, and he responds pretty angrily. But he's also still a little confused, and he starts to question his own expectations of God. Then, after some thought, he responds, saying, I know my Redeemer lives. In Job's words, he was saying, I know this is not the way it ends. I can't see that up there, so I'll have to read it. <laughs> Lo, these are but the outskirts of his ways. He's talking about God. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power who can understand, and magnifying the unsearchable wisdom of God. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know the way to it, and it is not found in the land of the living. God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. And then affirming relentlessly his own integrity, Job says, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. I think Job is right. Suffering and prosperity are not distributed in the world in proportion to the evil or good that a person does. We saw this in the last year. No one deserved. No one deserved what we experienced. I have to defend his friends a little bit, though, because I'm a spiritual director. And I've been in that place that they've been in. Anyone who spent time with a suffering friend 
knows how hard it is to remain fully present without trying to give answers. It's hard to sit silently knowing that a friend will have to rebuild her life or his life piece by piece without any certainty about the outcome. Our human instinct is to investigate what went wrong and identify a solution. We want to fix everything and we want to do it fast. 30 seconds or 60 seconds, just like the commercials. And don't think you're not programmed in that way by these commercials. Then we think we can help our friend eliminate the cause and get back to normal as soon as possible. So we'd rather fix the suffering than we would admit to the mystery at the heart of suffering. That the truth is, is just beyond our complete understanding. This is the purview of God. We cannot fix our suffering. So as we return to church, we might be tempted to do this. We might try to rush into getting back to a normal life and prefer that over admitting the power that suffering has over us and still has over us. We're still suffering, even though we're trying to find some normalcy in our company. Human suffering, though, is a familiar theme in the Bible. Everyone, everyone in the Old Testament endured some of it. As we heard earlier, David, David suffered in so many ways. Some of it he brought on himself with bad behavior, such as lusting after a married woman and arranging to have her husband killed. But David also endured some things he probably didn't deserve. He was chased by assassins who turned out to be his friends. And it's believed that he suffered from something called bone disease. He didn't always respond well to these painful experiences, but to his credit, he did always turn back to God. He did so to lament and to express both his pain and his unwavering love. In the Psalms, we read of his fears and his call to God to answer him. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Actually, I don't think David was asking to die here, nor to have his suffering taken away. He was saying to God, lift up my chin so I can see you. And what do we want in the midst of suffering but to feel the presence of God? We need that. This model of approaching God with our suffering was given a name. It's called lament. David wrote several laments in his psalms beautifully. And we have an entire book in the Bible dedicated to it. But in addition to the Bible and biblical scholars, I think most therapists would encourage us to practice this, to voice our complaints, 
to shout about our exasperation at loss and to express our feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, it is healthy to do so. Human suffering is such a central experience in, its, in our lives that it, this template is borrowed from the Bible and becomes a very popular theme throughout secular literature. Just a couple of them, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar has brief references to Christ being tempted in the desert. And Stephen Schwartz devotes a scene to it in Godspell. In W. Somerset Mom's book, The Razor's Edge, the main character uses the Gospel of Matthew to introduce his own ending, which Jesus accepts on the cross. And he accepts it by saying, for greater love hath no man. Secular literature is filled with human suffering. And it even offers pieces of redemption for the characters. But as a church community, what do we do with this? Do we admit to being baffled by the experience? Or do we dare, again, as Jesus did, to question God as we suffer. We know from Job's experience we can't always turn to friends. We know human beings can't really always conceive of the answers. This is our question this morning. Some spiritual leaders and mental health practitioners think the pandemic, as horrible as it was, also offered us a place for spiritual sanctuary. It was our spiritual desert, as we were removed from the world's distractions, and we had no one to witness our losses but one another and God. And in fact, it's estimated now that some 15% of Americans have come out of the pandemic with post-traumatic stress syndrome. I think that's a low amount. And I, I would encourage you, if you're on the road and you see somebody driving like a maniac, have patience. That person probably has had a very bad year like you. So what choice do we have but to accept the mystery at the heart of suffering? We may be cheating ourselves out of spiritual growth if we try to return to a normal life without passing through this door, without allowing ourselves to enter the stage of unknowing, because it is, this unknowing is, a critical step on the journey to wholeness. Spiritual writer Sue Monk Kidd says, what has happened to our ability to dwell in the unknowing, to live inside a question and coexist with its tensions of uncertainty? Where is our willingness to incubate pain and let it birth something new? So if out of a need to be stoic, which is not a bad thing, we choose not to share our suffering, we risk denying its impact on ourselves. And by not sharing it with our friends, we miss the opportunity to see the promise of redemption that comes in the form of a friend's acts to honor and witness our pain. Those hugs, 
those moments of deep listening are forms of human redemption that we can give to each other. We may miss the chance to create or reinforce those connections. I have another question about suffering. Could it be that the trauma we experience of, as we suffer is not the end of our story? Jesus experienced horrible trauma, public torture, humiliation, crucifixion, but his story didn't end with his death. And therein lies the paradox. Deep in the darkness of his suffering was the hidden treasure of resurrection and redemption, the biggest gift the world has ever seen most important, significant thing we could have. Even secular people believe this theory. Trauma therapist Peter Levine, who's written extensively about trauma, offers us this insight. Paradox of trauma is it has both the power to destroy and the power to transform and resurrect. How can trauma transform us, you might ask? Well, often we heal in community. We come back to our tribe and we listen to one another's stories. We don't give advice, we don't admonish. We honor and we love. And that is how we become good witnesses. Job's examples, his friend's example shows how to be bad witnesses, but we can learn to be good ones. We can learn to become soul companions and return as a community of soul friends who listen patiently and witness the experiences of others. And there's another thing. As witnesses, we grow spiritually when we show love and mercy. You'll remember that God rebuked Job's friends, mostly because they spoke ill of the Lord, but also because they failed to show any mercy. So if suffering is the theme of the book of Job, the other theme is the importance of witnesses to our spiritual development. It's crucial that we have friends who support us as we move through the dark nights in our journey, as we travel toward the light. We all need this. As a community, we've had individual and collective losses, and we can come back and walk alongside one another as we return to a new life. And perhaps we can grow and create new meaning. This all sounds good, but how do we do it? How can we comfort one another? We need some, some ways to do this. I'm going to suggest that we begin by listening to the stories our friends have to tell about their struggles. Spiritual scholars think that we were hardwired to hear these stories. Let's consider again the miracle of the resurrection. Biblical scholars say, there were three basic stories about Jesus' life, his birth and ministry, his crucifixion and death, and his resurrection. 
That narrative template, I believe, as a writing teacher, is placed in all of our hearts. And it gives us a format for expressing our own pain. We carry the same plot line for our stories. And if we can't tell them, which we often can't, we often live them out without being aware of doing so. So I'd like to suggest one more thing about suffering. Perhaps it has another reason for existing in our world. Perhaps, just try to imagine this, we suffer not because of what it does to us, but because of what it does for us. Uh, we're following a divine plan that forces us to dig deeper into our souls so we can become better at showing love and compassion. So what if our sole purpose is to come to Earth to live out the embodiment of human suffering in the way Jesus did? Can you live with that? It's difficult. But if that is the case, it certainly changes the way we feel about this whole pandemic experience. It changes the way we see Job and his suffering. It changes the way we see Jesus' suffering. And it calls on us to practice being good witnesses to one another. And if we accept that this is how to deepen our relationship with God, how does it change the way we've been created, we, we relate to one another? Well, if we're created in the image of God, wouldn't we become more compassionate, more loving with one another? Wouldn't we become better witnesses to one another? Perhaps the point of coming back to church is not progress, but compassion. Perhaps rather than a rush to return to a normal life or a so-called normal life, we should use this as an opportunity to become soul friends to one another. Again, how do we do this? I'd like to recommend something that I borrowed from the On Being Project. Six grounding virtues they recommend for everything we do. Keep in mind, virtues are not the stuff of saints and heroes. They're spiritual technologies and tools for the art of living. So what can we do? We can use words that matter, show hospitality, Live humbly, express humility, generous listening, and this is what I really want to promote. Listening is more than being quiet while others have their say. It's about presence as much as receiving. It is about connection more than observing. Real listening demands vulnerability, a willingness to be surprised, to let go of assumptions and take in 
ambiguity. It is never in gotcha mode. The generous listener <coughs> wants to understand the humanity, the soul behind the words of the other, and patiently summons one's own best self and, and one's own most generous words and questions. And I would just add, as a plug for small groups, this is a perfect way to um, practice generous listening. Small groups become so close. And this is what we've done in the writing group. It's as much a listening group as it is a writing group. And then finally, adventurous civility. The adventure of civility for our time can't be a mere matter of politeness or nices. Adventurous civility honors the difficulty of what we face and the complexity of what it means to be human. Now, I'd just like to remind you as we begin to wrap up, in Ephesians, Paul wrote, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. I'll end, and then Sean and the group will come up and do a final piece for us. This is the words of the priest and spiritual director and writer Henry Nowen, who says, the Holy Spirit of God is given to us so that we can become participants in God's compassion and so reach out to all people at all times with God's heart. So as we come back, I'm going to suggest we have a big obligation to one another to share our experiences. As we do so, to be vulnerable and to give our friends the opportunity to shine through sacred love by showing compassion. So go out, boldly express loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Listen to one another's complaints and let nothing stand between us. Thank you for that message. Let nothing stand between us, Father. That's what uh, it's a good word to wrap up with. That was Jesus' prayer for us. And so I would like to close with this very simple prayer as a benediction. I'm going to invite us, if you're able to, stand up as we close with this. Make us one, Holy Father. By the Spirit 